from the Rose City in beautiful downtown Portland, Oregon, home of bikes, books, bridges, beards, food carts, startups, and indie coffee. Grab your dog, snatch your hammer and beer, leave your umbrella at home. Welcome to the Tiny House Podcast. It's a Tiny House Podcast, and I just gave a silent clap, so it sounded like we were all synchronized. Nice. I'm Perry. <laughs> You're the problem. I'm MJ. This is Mark. I thought I, I, thought I only heard two. So. Yeah, no, it was three. Oh, it was three. No. No? <laughs> Mine okay. was silent. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> silent but deadly. Silent but deadly. <laughs> Too small in here for that. Oh, man. It is indeed. Isn't that the truth? So, uh, why don't we just jump right into it? Because the guest today is probably going to fill up the entire hour. I'm sure he's got a crap ton of stories. And I got a crap ton of questions. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> so, uh, Listeners, we, you're in for a treat. You're in for a major treat because we have Super excited. the uh, creator of the very famous and well-known... <laughs> I stopped, listeners, because we had this so. conversation about saying famous. <laughs> but we weren't talking about a person in this case. We were talking about the, the show. show which, is, which is, you know, That's a good. top show. The That's top good. show on a- A&E called Hoarders. One and of my we, favorites. Yeah. Oh, it is. Oh, yeah. Awesome. So you're, well, here you go. And so we've got Matt Chan, the creator of that show, and we're going to talk all about this phenomenon, this movement, this, Ooh. yeah, this craziness that is featured on this amazing TV show. So Matt, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so, so we're, we're, our listeners might ask, well, why in the world is the Tiny House podcast talking about or talking to someone who's, who runs a show about hoarding? And I, I, think the answer to that is be- I think the answer to that is because invariably a tiny, ho- a, 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 a tiny house aspirant has to divulge themselves of like 90 to 95, maybe almost 99% of their <laughs> crap yep. be- before they move from a 2,500 square foot house into a 240 square foot tiny house. And so we thought it would be fantastic to talk about this phenomenon, which is the opposite of where tiny house aspirants go, which is totally filling up the volume of a 2,500 square foot house or more, maybe. Actually, um, I think that um, I'm really looking forward to this conversation to talk about the psychology behind how people, how their background um, sort of... um, forces them, for lack of a better direction, into this, into this a hoarding situation. But more so the psychology behind how do they decide what to keep and what goes? Because that is actually what I think the tiny house movement and, and um, people that hoard or people that collect have in common. Well, right? it's interesting because the, it's funny that you say that because the hoard, in my understanding of hoarding anyway, those people aren't making that decision. <laughs> Their bad decisions being made for them by professionals or some sort. And so it's, it's going to be interesting to, to hear more about that psychology. So, Matt, again, welcome to the show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah thanks. We, we will let you well, say more well, than yes and no. Well, hoarding is really, it's interesting in that hoarding is always a secondary manifestation of some trauma that happened prior. Um, I mean, it's, it's funny that, that because basically hoarders end up living in a tiny house. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So they exist in a very small section. You know, usually they'll isolate one room, or and then there's just paths and corridors into the house, and they just end up living in probably you know two two hundred square feet or less. That's fascinating. How how does it? You, so, you, so, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. Go ahead. I was just going to ask. So. How, you talk about trauma. How, what kind of traumas produce hoarding as an outcome? It could be anything. I mean, over the course of, 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 of doing all the shows, I mean, every situation is unique. I mean, it could be uh, like post-traumatic stress. It could be abuse. It could be losing a loved one. I mean, it really, I mean, what it comes down to is that People, you know, I mean, what makes, okay, let's go back to what makes the show work. And what makes the show work is everybody understands the tendency, right? Everybody, everybody's a hoarder at some level. I mean, even if you have a junk drawer, 
choose. You throw stuff in there. <laughs> and it's like, well, I can't get rid of that keychain because that reminds me of X. Mm. So the, the, it's a human trait that your possessions have an emotional attachment with you. Mm. And so one of the things that you hear that's a theme of the hoarders is everyone else has failed me in the world, but my stuff has it. And so that becomes more of a constant for them in their life. That's something they can count on, you know, because, you know, as you, as you, you grow up, you realize, you know, life changes. Yeah. And so people always search for stability and, you know, I guess hoarding might be the ultimate manifestation of that. Yeah. How on earth did you, so it, how on earth did you come up with this? <laughs> Well, okay, so, you know, my career has been reality television. Um, you know, reality in the sense of real stuff, I don't really, I never venture into what they call scripted reality where you're just doing stuff for shock value and things are manipulated. But I always tried to seek out real situations. And I happened to be in Japan visiting my son who was studying there one year and I was watching what was equivalent to uh, their like today show or good morning America. Um, and they had this guy in a neighborhood uh, in Tokyo where there were a lot of nice houses, except one house was just, you know, a mess. And I guess the, the, the literal translation for the word was like garbage house. And so this guy brought in, the city, they cleaned the house up and, and the owner of the house was screaming, yelling, high drama. There were rats. And I mean, it was crazy. It was just like the episode of orders. <laughs> and I, I thought to myself, I said like, wow, I've seen a lot of those houses, mm. you know, in, in neighborhoods in America. And so I came back and I started doing research and, you know, we found all these, these instances. And at that point, you know, the term hoarders wasn't a thing, right? I mean, you know, you kind of heard the term, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't as pronounced as it is today and as well-defined as it is today. Mm. Um, so I came up with an idea for the show, the one that you see, and I tried to sell it to the networks and no one would buy it. They really? like, well, what is this? <laughs> and uh, the initial sale I made was to A&E in a different version, they wanted a how-to, like a how-to show, a lifestyle show, where we go in and clean someone's house. And the pilot was ridiculous. <laughs> it was about this nurse who had all these animals in her apartment. And she died and, and, and was dead for like a week. Oh. And all her animals didn't touch the body, but they started eating each other. Oh, and then they God. brought in you know, the police and then her her uh, sister and it, it just became this really, it got really dark really fast, but they wanted this kind of upbeat cleaning show and it really didn't work. It really didn't work. And we went through a couple of, you know, incarnations. I said, look, this show can work. Just let me do it the way, you know, I think it should be done. So they went ahead and did that. We reshot the pilot. Um, and they still didn't think it was good enough. So uh, their sister network, the bi Biography Channel, said, we'll run it and we'll see what happens. So they ran it. There was no promotion for it. And it popped a huge number. Wow. And they didn't believe it. So they ran it again and it got a huge number again. And <laughs> so then Annie says, oh, okay, we were wrong. This is a great show. So they <laughs> put it on. And probably within two episodes, it had gone viral. And it was trending on Twitter. We were on Oprah's show within two and a half weeks. Wow. And, and it just became this thing. And all of a sudden, quarters became a deal, you know? And so now, <laughs> you know, you see it referenced everywhere in pop culture. So right. it, was, it was really fascinating to see. Wow. And one of the things that, I, 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 that gave me endless hours of pleasure was wa watching the Twitter feed during the show oh, no, because at that point Twitter was sort of a thing, you know, it was a thing, but the, you know, media companies haven't, hadn't figured out how to plant, you know, and promote their show through Twitter. So it was pure 
and it was hilarious. <laughs> the, uh, the 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 response that people were getting. I mean, to watch Twitter blow up while you're watching the show was amazing. Especially if you're the creator of the show. Yeah. So that's how it started. <laughs> wow. So I have a, a somewhat personal connection to your show, in, in from an inspirational perspective. Um, my uh, my boyfriend's parents died. I don't know about a dozen years ago now, and about six years ago, um, he got the house and all of their possessions, and they were hoarders. And so wow. for six years, he had left their house in its existing condition, um, literally with a couch that his father died on and the last meal worth of dishes in the sink. Oh, geez. And he left it that way for six years. And oh, he, we were dating and then he, he always circled back on, you know, I got to clean it out. I got to clean it out. But he, <laughs> he could never find the emotional wherewithal to, to again, go in there and figure out what, you know, it's, it's that Perry, you and I talked briefly earlier about decision fatigue yeah. anyways. And so, so I was inspired by hoarders, um, actually hired a crew, um, put the tarps out front. Here's our keep tarp. Here's our maybe tarp. Here's our throwaway tarp. Here's our recycle truck. Here's the dump truck. And uh, in a matter of, I think it was about eight hours. I had six people for eight hours. Uh, we took six truckloads yeah. out of a thousand square foot little wow. rambler. And it was. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was. <laughs> it was amazing. I mean, there was cake mixes. There was cake boxes of cake mix that were purchased in the 1950s for like 12 cents a piece. And there's like two dozen of them. <laughs> there was shampoo, you know, for 27 cents from stores that no longer existed. And there was 30 <laughs> bottles under the bathroom sink. Wow. And it was really crazy. But, but my point was, is that I was inspired by the methodology that they used in helping my boyfriend sort of overcome the, not only the emotional nature, but the decision fatigue and all the psychology that goes behind him having that responsibility to get rid of his parents' mm -hmm, stuff. Mm -hmm. So even though, I mean, technically, I guess it was his stuff now, um, that was really, really challenging. And I was really inspired by the show and I was inspired by their methodology. And because I had that emotional unattached, I was disattached, unattached? Unattached. Um, from the stuff. Um, I got to be the bad guy, which was which was mixed blessing. Um, but I wanted to say, again, that I that I have a pretty personal connection to the show as far as having gone through that process with somebody else mm -hmm. and and having worked through again he talked about the trauma mm -hmm. um it's a, it's a really personal story for me yeah i mean that's very common uh you know for people to to see the show and to just i guess the most common tweet was I'm so cleaning my house right now. <laughs> <laughs> or, the, or the other one is, I feel so much better about my house right now. Right. Because, you know, Less of a mess. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Comparatively. I mean, you know, like, like any TV show, right? I mean, you heighten what's there. And, of course, we do extreme cases. But, um, you know, hoarding is, you know, it's a big deal. I mean, a lot of people hoard stuff because... You know, and I don't know if it's uniquely, I think it is, I think there's probably more hoarders in the U.S. than anywhere else because it, it, it's such a consumer society, mm. right? And, you know, you're, I mean, if you think about, you know, we just take it for granted, but how you're barraged by messages to consume yeah. continuously throughout the day, yeah. it's, it's daunting. You know, and, uh, and and because we have a lot of space, because, you know, the average home is pretty big compared to what most people in the world live in, you know, you tend to fill stuff up. You, you, can, you can accumulate stuff, you know. The challenge for us is always to find hoarders that aren't 70 plus in age. Because mm. almost by definition, if you make it that long in life, you're kind of a hoarder because you just accumulate stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you don't have a specific step. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about yeah. um, we've talked about the trauma, and I definitely want to circle back to that. And what I, again, what I referred to as decision fatigue. But um, so would you then sort of categorize then the different like shall we say contributing factors to hoarding? One of them would be again the consumer based society and and our the consumer. Let me see this consumer mentality says you're going to feel better. You're going to be more efficient. You're going to be sexier, sexier mm -hmm. right? If you buy all this stuff. And then you had also referred earlier mm -hmm. in the conversation to people that have emotional 
attachments to stuff. And then there's also what I refer to as the accidental accumulation of stuff. You know, you inherit or someone gives you stuff that you feel badly about turning away. Um, would you categorize those sort of three major contributors? Are there, are there others? I think that's pretty much it. What, what happens is you reach a critical mass where it compounds things, right? I mean, it's one thing to have a junk drawer, but then you start having a junk room. Mm-hmm. And like anything in life, if it becomes so overwhelming, you tend to ignore it. Mm-hmm. And, and then it just, it just spirals out of control there. Um, you know, I mean, it's funny because there are all hoarders that like will have that, you know, five gallon buckets of human waste and sitting around the house. Oh. And there's other hoarders that have rooms and rooms filled up with like beanie baby dolls and mm. stuff. And they're all categorized and in little packages and dated and that kind of stuff. So it, you know, hoarders can be chaotic or extremely organized, mm. but at some point it just gets out of hand mm. and they can't do anything about it. You know, because it's it, the it, 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 you know, one of the things we learned is is people tend to kind of react to their environments. That when you see a room that's in disarray for most people, it's sort of draining. Mm. Because if it's your own house, you think like uh, I got to clean that up at some <laughs> point. So every time you see the pile <laughs> of junk, it drains you. Mm-hmm. And it, it, and if you notice when you walk into like even like a zen like atmosphere. It actually is liberating. It feels good because everything is in order, not chaotic. And people live in between there somewhere. And so depending on, it, it, it's very subtle, but depending on how junky things are, starts to drain you. And then that draining doesn't give you enough energy to tackle the cleanup. Yeah. And, then that, and so the cycle starts. So then you look at it and you get drained. And you don't have, you can't clean it up. It grows and it just keeps going that way until, you know, there's different levels. Like if you get to a level five order, that's where your electricity and plumbing no longer work. <laughs> and so, you know, that's pretty much the end there. Um, but prior to that, what happens is, you know, uh, let's say uh, your plumbing breaks, but your house is so hoarded out, but so people are ashamed to have workmen come in. Oh, yeah. And so they just kind of live with it. Mm-hmm. And then it, that just keeps compounding itself, mm-hmm. you know? And usually how a lot of hoarders were found out is they may have a medical emergency and, you know, paramedics come in and they, you know, they can't get in to get someone out. And then the crisis that ensues is like, well, this person won't be allowed back into their house unless you clean it up. And that's sort of why the premise of the show is, it, it, it's very interesting. The, the format is there needs to be, um, some crisis or what we call state. I mean, any good reality show will have what's, what's at stake. And in hoarders, you have all the elements of a classic reality show, a ticking clock and, and an outcome that it has to happen. So usually it's like, well, they got two weeks before they're going to be evicted or, you know, this after, if you don't clean this up, your kids are going to go have to go into the system. And so there's always, a reason that the hoarder will participate because left on their own, a hoarder will never be on the show. I was you know, wondering, they don't think they have a problem. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the, so the way, the way you find, um, uh, what do you call them? Guests or uh, candidates or how, what do you call these people? For uh, the show? Or, yes, we just call them hoarders. Okay. <laughs> so, so the way you find these hoarders is, is they obviously don't call you up and say, Hey, I want to be on the show. Do they, or do you find them through child services or something like that? Or family. Okay, yes, mostly it's family, mm. and sometimes uh, municipalities will call because they have with these code enforcement officers oh, yeah. that have to deal with hoarders in their city. Mm-hmm. But mostly it's relative. It's like, um, you know, my mom's a hoarder or my sister's a hoarder, and, you know, they're getting fines up to $1,000 a day, and they won't clean up. I don't know what to do. And a lot of times the cities, the cities would ask us to come in and because they'd rather have us try to fix it as opposed to having, you know, creating another homeless situation for mm-hmm. themselves. Have, have, has your show always, but, have your show, has your show always included like therapists and, and people like that? And 
And it is it is oh, that always okay. They're the host. Okay. And hostesses. Okay. And I guess that's is that why the the municipalities would call you because it seems kind of odd for a government to call a TV, a TV show, show to okay. help with the problem. Yeah. yeah. Well, because it's it's the way we handled it. I mean, from the beginning, you know, one of the things that I won't do is. I mean, let's face it, reality TV, TV in general is exploitive. Yeah. I mean, it's entertaining. But what I won't do is compound the situation. Um, you know, so we don't pay the hoarders to be on the show. What we do is provide them with what's called aftercare. So we'll help them clean their house, and then we'll provide them the funds that can be used towards more psychological help or organizing help or cleanup help or whatever they want to do. I see. And to me, that seems like... Um, much more valuable. Mm. Uh, there, are, there are shows that knock this off. There's one that's on TLC called Hoarding Buried Alive, and they would actually pay their hoarders. You know? And that's like you know, doing an episode of Intervention and paying the participants in drugs. Yeah. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's just not right. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. So that's one of the reasons. Because uh, you know, we've done uh, home makeover shows before in the past, and we always would make sure the job we did was correct and to code and that kind of stuff. There was a trading spaces that show was notorious where they'd come in and do all this work and then leave and the whole thing would fall apart. <laughs> you know, so we, so I would never want us, the company to be in that position or incur that kind of liability. Yeah. So you wanted to do all everything right. And I think that's one of the reasons uh, people trust the show because we do do that, and then we do make an effort to help these people. How, how? Because, you know, let's face it, these stories are horrendous. Yeah. And you got you to gotta feel for them, because not only do you understand the tendency and the horror of like, oh my God, I could be there, is that if you can help the people and you, fought, you see the real human drama, I mean, that's what makes the show amazing, uh, is the yeah. human drama. Yeah. How, how often, if you know the answer to this question, um, how often or how frequently do the people you help on the show revert to hoarding? Revert back to what? Excuse, I, I didn't quite get that. I, di- I didn't phrase it very well. How many, how, how many, how, how, what percentage of your, your hoarders would you say after you've helped them go back to doing what they were doing before you found them? Um, you know, it's, it's about 30 to 50%. Mm. So it, it, it's, you know, it's better than most things. Right. It depends on their support system. Yeah. You know, if it's just a single order, chances are they're going to revert back. Mm. But, you know, if the whole family gets involved or friends get involved, they got a pretty good chance out of it. Interesting. So I mentioned earlier, I want to circle back to the psychology behind it. Again, I think that one of the, one of the, um, the aha moment or some, one of the things that will interest our our listeners is really this um, being able to relate to the challenges of keeping consumerism at bay. Yeah. Um, being able to relate to the challenges. <clears throat> now, of course, in a tiny house situation, sometimes it's, we'll, we'll say most of the time it's voluntary, right? What's most voluntary? of the time. Oh, going into a tiny house? Moving into a yeah. tiny house mm-hmm. is voluntary. Yeah, yeah. So most of the time getting rid of their 95% or 99% of their stuff is voluntary. Yes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it isn't. I mean, we have yeah. people that are, you know, that can no longer afford a regular house and they're having to go. But again, I think that the one thing that we can relate most to is the challenges of downsizing and what I referred to earlier as decision fatigue. Your brain, I read an article sometime, don't remember when or where, but it talked about the fact that your brain can literally only handle so many decisions per day. And you have to be in a pretty healthy psychological uh, position in order to be able to make those decisions. So for me, um, for instance, when I downsized, it took me about a year and a half um, in a pretty good psychological position to be able to get rid of everything to move into my 200 square feet. Can you talk about, again, you provide therapists and so forth that help these people make the decisions, but some of them might not be in a great psychological position to be able to make the decisions. Can you talk about decision fatigue or, or sort of how you... They're going to throw up their hands. I've seen them, many of them on the show, throw up their hands, walk away. Like they're literally not present for the process. Can you talk about that process or the therapists and how they work through that? Yeah. Um, generally, most of them don't want to do it, right? I mean, they're only there under duress. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. So you compound their mental state already with a situation that's overwhelming to them. Yeah. You know, so some can handle it, some can't. Generally, though, if you show them a glimmer of an outcome, like, you know, sometimes in the shows, okay, let us clean up one room. And hopefully that's a start. But generally, I mean, you know, moving into a tiny house versus a hoarder, you know, sounds similar, but I think they're vastly different because um, at the heart of it too, when you're dealing with hoarders, it's all about control. And I think when, you know, the psychology of it is people seem to be happiest when they feel they do, feel they do or actually do have some measure of control over their life yeah. because um, people are always trying to figure out a way to comfort themselves. Right. Um, I mean, that's why entertainment is so huge. Everybody's got their flat screens. I mean, everybody just wants to be entertained and soothed, you know, and that's why terms like, you know, shopping therapy and those types of things. I mean, to go out and buy something makes you feel good just for the moment. Um, and, and so that's, if you think of all the things that people can do to make themselves feel better, buying stuff is probably the easiest. Yeah. And so, uh, but people that want to move into tiny houses, and this is just my opinion, is they've kind of realized that and they're looking for a measure of control because they know there's more to life than just acquiring crap. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And part of their happiness is the simplicity of it all and to just enjoy life for what it is in the moment. It's very Zen-like. I mean, it's that whole mindfulness movement, you know, where really all you have control over is right now. And I think as people kind of go, you know, more conscious of that, so it's a whole different kind of thing. I mean, hoarding is a deep-seated mental illness. That's uh, a manifestation of other things. Um, and so I think the result is, yeah, you accumulate stuff and you have to get rid of it, but it's very different. It's very different. And I, and I think people that want to downsize and move into smaller homes and stuff is very admirable because, you know, you're really doing that for yourself yeah. and you're controlling your environment. You know, you're simplifying your life. So you can really, by simplifying your life, it opens your life Yeah, because you're not being controlled by your things or external kind of uh, things that happen. But for hoarders, you know, it, it's like oftentimes uh, people that have been abused um, tend to gain weight as a kind of an insulation. Yep. And I think hoarding to that degree too is you're insulating yourself uh, from the world. Yeah. All your stuff is around you to protect you. Matt, I, I have a question. So, sorry. Sorry. So the way this is this only the second time we've had a guest whose cadence, speech cadence prompted me to jump in and ask a question and you're not done yet. So I, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> but I do have a question. You, you speak so wisely. I, I'm wondering, do you have like a philosophy or a psychology background or is this is the, the knowledge you're sharing, not just about hoarders, but this brother, you, you, you just made a broader um, description of what's going on here that goes beyond the act of actual hoarding. Does, does this, does this wisdom or this knowledge come from any place? Um, or, um, is it educational backed or, or, or is it just the nature of doing so many reality TV shows? You know, sadly enough, I think it's the nature of doing so many reality TV shows because you have to explore human nature. Mm. Plus it's also, you know, running companies with employees. And, and raising a family. I mean, I'm old. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and so just years of a mile travel that you just see life for what it is. Mm. And, um, you know, because if you're doing reality shows, one of the key things is to be able to step into someone else's shoes, right. And see the world as they see it. Mm. And in order to do that, you have to be kind of open to it. Um, you know, just like your employees. I mean, you know, there are some employers that go like, I hate my employees. They're necessarily evil. I, I never thought that. Because I always thought like, the people that work for you are there to help you, to make you the best. And 
when you start looking at that and you, and you see what motivates people, I think you gain a lot of wisdom by that. I think people that don't do that and just are self-centered, it's a tough life because you have to be able to see life, you know, through other people's viewpoints. I mean, that's why comedians are so great because that's all about seeing it from a different perspective. Yeah. You know, they can do that. And that's why, you know, humor is a higher brain function, right? I mean, to be, to be able to make someone laugh is, is, is a special gift. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, just, so when I, when I talk about this stuff, I have seen stuff and I've witnessed stuff. I mean, it's like what Blade Runner, you know, I've seen things. So, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's just, doing TV is kind of interesting in that you get to see and experience things most people don't. I mean, by definition, you're behind, you're on the other side of the ropes always, right? Yeah. Right? Because you get to see how the sausage is made and yeah. then tell the story about it. Yeah. So that's an advantage you get doing television or doing any kind of media. You get to see that stuff and then you interpret it. So, yeah, so I don't have any formal background. I just, life has been my teacher. Well, it sounds like you've learned a lot. So I, I, based on the TV, the, the behind the scenes or behind the camera exposure you've had, I'm, I, this is my co-host may roll their eyes at this question, mm-hmm. but I just can't help it. What do you what do you think about the ongoing uh, trouble in Hollywood and and media production in general uh, with the sexual harassment issues going on? Oh, I think you know. I, I think it's 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 high time that has happened. I mean, if you you know being around the entertainment business, you it just it's, it's part of their DNA. I mean, it has to change. I mean, uh, you know, pretty girls sell product, yeah. you know, and easy guys are usually involved. <laughs> and, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, I think the toughest place for a woman in the business is to be in Los Angeles. Cause there's always someone prettier, mm-hmm. always someone more pliant than you. Mm-hmm. And what happens is, you know, I mean, you know, the old jokes of the girl from the Midwest getting off the bus at LA to be a starlet. That's true. I mean, that happened. Yeah. And so that situation is, is ripe for this kind of you know, exploitation, you know, and, you know, I, and, and you can blame the victims, you can blame the predators. I mean, you know, guys have to show some restraint, but you know, when you get your ass kissed 24 seven, pretty soon that's the norm. Yeah. You know, and it, it, it's all about power. It's all about money, you know, uh, for those guys. And I, I just think, you know, I mean, that was shocking, right? Matt Lauer this morning gets mm. bounced. Yep. You know? Yes. And I, and I know Matt because we came up through, you know, uh, the evening magazine system. So I've known him for a while and he's just a normal guy. But, you know, living in that rarefied atmosphere of being a network star. Yeah. It changes people. Yeah. That's, that's you know? what I, that's what I thought. Everybody is there to make sure you're okay. You're comfortable. Yeah. And I'd be guilty of that too. Yeah. You know, I mean, when you have someone that's your star, your show, you're going to be extra nice to them because you don't want any issue. Yeah. I'm not rolling my eyes at the question, so, but my, my, my uh, comment is this. Duh. Yeah. <laughs> like it doesn't surprise me yeah, that it's exactly, coming out right? in politics. Yeah. It doesn't surprise mm-hmm. me. It comes out with the athletes. It doesn't surprise me that it's coming out in Hollywood. Yeah. Maybe because I'm a woman, maybe because I spent a majority of my life experiencing not to this degree of course but some level of that like okay yeah and like i guess for those of us that have experienced for most of our life it just becomes um on one hand it's you're thankful of course Mm -hmm. that it's that people are more aware of it yeah on the other hand you're like yeah next i mean we Mm -hmm. i i've no i would expect this to be again going back to the power and control statement Mm -hmm. That's what it's about, really. I mean, that's what it's about. It's about people in it power is. and totally people without is. power. It totally is. Anytime you have an imbalance of power, you have this. Yeah. Because it's not about, you know, they, they always say it's sexual harassment. It is, but it isn't. It's more about power. Yeah. I can get away with it. I can do this to you. Right. Yeah. Michelle harasses the hell out of us. Yeah, we get it all the oh, time. It's I a guess. true story. <laughs> God. If you could only hear the stories of abuse 
<laughs> in the small studio. Yeah. Hands off. It's brutal. <laughs> it really is. It really is. Um, okay, so this is really great. So where did where did you um where did you come from, Matt? Like um pre orders. Yeah, pre orders. What were you where were you some of the other shows or things you what, worked on? Yeah, that and, and even like where did you go to school? Like where were you, you know? Oh, you, well, I'm from Portland, right? You so are that's where I grew up. Oh my god! Yeah. I met him here. At went, to, went to Cleveland High School. Went to University of Oregon. I'm an Oregon guy. Oh my god! And uh, I worked in. Well, actually, my first television job was working at uh, Public Television Portland. Oh my god! Hmm. I wonder why we love this guy. To, <laughs> and then I went to King TV in Seattle, and then from Seattle I went to San Francisco, and then San Francisco to LA, and then to Sacramento, and then back to Seattle huh. yeah, about 20 years ago. Wow. And so what was your first? So, yeah, I'm, I'm, an, I'm you know, the original I hipster. Root for the duck. <laughs> 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 and what was your first uh, TV show? The first TV show that I created or worked on? Or... Cre- created, yeah. Oh, the first TV show I created was I was working, I, I was station manager at a station in Sacramento, California, and it was a CBS station. And at that time, CBS's shows were Murder, She Wrote was their number one show. Hmm. And the CBS was in bad shape. I think I was, I got in trouble for this because I was quoted in one of the trades saying the demographics for CBS were old to dead. (laughs) And one of the problems CBS was that you had no opportunity in a market like Sacramento to sell advertising to anyone young. You know, you couldn't get like Taco Bell or Mm -hmm. Pizza Hut or anyone to advertise their station. Mm -hmm. So I created this show called Scratch. It was a kid's show. It was sort of a magazine kid's show that was hosted by teens and that was the first show I actually created from scratch. It was actually called Scratch. But, um, did and you? it was great because we found a lot of talent. You know, one of the big talent we found was Lisa Ling. Oh, wow. Really? She was a high school, she was a high school sophomore. Wow. And there was a, there was a couple of, there was uh, Craig Jackson, who's kind of a staple on Fox doing game shows and stuff. And uh, there's another uh, young man named John, Jonathan Karsh who went on uh, actually he was in San Francisco doing shows and, and he actually directed some documentaries that won some awards for HBO so yeah so hmm. a lot of people went on from there but, huh. we, but yeah that was fun that was, and that was one of the few shows where I had complete control you know because there was no network exec saying Nah, nah, nah. We don't like this. We don't like that. You know, we just did it the way we wanted to. So that was special. So when you, you don't get that chance very often. Yeah. So when you started Scratch, the station director or whatever that person's called didn't say, "Oh my God, we're dying here. We need more advertising." Matt, create a show. Or did you? Or did you just say? Well, hey. actually, I, that that guy was me. Oh. <laughs> so I said, "Well, let's do this and, and get out of this." You know. And so you know, we were able. They were sales part was happy that they were able to go all these different, you know, specials and starts talking to advertisers they normally didn't talk to. Not Geritol. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. You know, I mean, that, that was always the, the big secret when you're watching, you know, when you're doing programming stuff. All you do is watch the commercials and that tells you who's watching your show. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You so know, so that's why when you watch Fox, you know, it's about sort of gold anti-intuitive, right? Adult diaper. I mean, yeah, <laughs> you know. I'm falling. I can't get up. I mean, it's all that stuff. When you watch the NFL, it's all Viagra and beer. Uh, beer. And beer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, when that moment overtakes you, you know, be prepared. Oh, God. He knows them off the top of his head. <laughs> of course. So what do you think about the, are, well, let me ask you first. Are you familiar with the tiny house TV shows? I'm, 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 well, with the TV show? Yeah, the TV, there's, there's, there's a half a dozen. There's a half probably. a dozen or so. Oh, there's eight, oh, seven. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I, I can assume, I imagine what the artist, you know, once I retired, I actually stopped watching those shows because I couldn't stand it anymore. <laughs> you know, because, you know, <laughs> so once you're we. in the business like that, you're ruined because <laughs> if I, I can never be entertained by the shows. So when I watch the show and it's good, I'll think like, Damn, how come I didn't come up with that idea? <laughs> or if it's bad, I say, 
how the hell do they sell that thing? <laughs> so I get two negative responses, but yeah, I can imagine what they are. You know, I, I'm sure they're very popular because, you know, it, it is, it's an idyllic lifestyle. People, you know, I mean, obviously the grass is always greener, but to escape and watch a show like that and to realize, wow, you know, I don't have to worry about my house all the time. It seems comfortable. It seems like you have a life. Most people are strapped it's to their homes. Like. You know, <laughs> home ownership is not yeah, a cakewalk, it right? It is not. I mean, there's always something you're messing with. Yep. You know, that's why millennials are not buying these McMansions. Yeah. You know, because they'd rather be out. Yep. Mm. I'd rather go to a restaurant. I, yep. I can always go to a park if I want green space. Yep. So it's, you know, I don't, I don't know about Portland, but, you know, in Seattle, it's tough, you know, when you have these big mansions for sale, because people will buy it because, you know, they're just dripping with money. But for the most part, you know, no one wants them. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Speaking on behalf of the Tiny House Movement, we're kind of proud because our shows, our shows, mm-hmm. um, are actually either number one or number two in the individual networks that they're running on. So that's why there's currently seven in production and or seven on the air right now, and then three more currently in production. So, um, but like we said earlier, though, it's not just the tiny houses; it's the minimalism, the psychology behind it. It's it's the behind the rope story that you talk so much about that inspires other people. Is it unusual? Um, mm-hmm. Is it unusual, Matt? To and, and I may this might be a dumb question, because but I'm not into. Oh, it is. Is is it unusual <laughs> for for a, a genre like, for example, the tiny house movement to have so many shows? Like, uh, it, it, would there ever would it ever seem normal to have like six or seven shows about hoarders? Oh yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, the network. a network environment is the ultimate derivative environment, right? (laughs) Because everybody's accountable for their rating. So Mm -hmm. if you, if you have like, like let's say any has hoarders, TLC will go, well, what's our hoarding show? Because hoarding now is a genre, you know, that kind of show. Um, You know, if you notice when training spaces started, you know, everybody had those home makeover shows. Yeah. So it, it's very derivative. It's just mm-hmm. how you spin your version. Mm-hmm. I see. And so the tiny house thing is the same, you know. Uh, it, it, invariably, the, the, it, what's interesting about those types of shows, it's not necessarily the idea of living in a small space. What people zero in on are the creativity of stuff. Like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, that's a table that could be flipped into a bed <laughs> or the kind of interesting... You know, heaters, it's gear. People love, because it comes back to consumerism again, right? (laughs) I mean, all the tools that you would need to make a tiny house really something crazy and special, people zero in on that. You know, like, this old house, it wasn't about renovating a house. It was about about selling tools. Yeah, I could hang a door if I had that tool. Yeah. Buy the tool, (laughs) and they never use it. But they, by the act of buying the tool, tells them they could do it, right? Wow. I mean, that's the psychology. Yeah, yeah. Which then contributes to the hoarder's garage. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the, the bins of tools. Yeah, why did I buy this tool? I've never yeah. used it. Because <laughs> you might need it someday. Exactly. For that uh, for that cabinet corner jointed jack rabbited corner piece that you never knew how to build until now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, for guys going to like, you know, a big box hardware store, it's like, you know, other people going to Nordstrom Rack, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you want to discover stuff and, you know. Matt, we've, we've so talked, sorry, we've, we've talked with a number of people who've been on these shows, these reality tiny house shows, and invariably they talk about how unglamorous it is to actually be on the show. Um, it, it can you talk? Oh, about, yeah. Can you talk a little bit, a little bit about that? Well, you know, I mean, when people watch a show, they think it all happens in real time, right? But you know, it's like, can you do that scene again? Can you walk through this again? And you have to stage things in order because people, because the producer will arrive with a narrative in their mind, a story that they have to cover, and that is constructed via act. So usually, a half hour has four acts. And the first act is going to be like seven minutes long to 10 minutes long. And then subsequently, you know, they, they, they timed out. 
So your last act was maybe two minutes between commercial breaks. So that dictates how you break things down. Um, And so what happens is you have to create situations that artificially heighten what they call cliffhangers. So you have to to watch through the commercial break to see, okay, and then, you know, for example, yeah, then we, we, we were about to put the finishing touches on the kitchen and then disaster happened. So they, <laughs> people have to wait. Cause they, well, I want to see what happened what the disaster was. And usually it's nothing big, but it did not <laughs> pull you through. The window but, didn't arrive know, on time. When you're, in the, when you're in those shows, you know, you just, it's a ton of standing around, right? And they have to set this shot up. They have to do this. And then they say, then they ask you to come in after waiting for three hours. Okay, can you be spontaneous now? Act <laughs> you, know, you know, because the, 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 the reality of reality shows are they want a scripted network show kind of juice, the drama or the humor or whatever, but without having to pay actors. Because um, yeah. <laughs> you're trying to get real so people to act. Yeah. And that's where it usually falls apart. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's why reality shows those are kind so of shows cool. where they pull, do pull aside interviews. Yeah, where the people said, and then Joe came into the room and I blew my cork. You know, it's <laughs> like who talks like that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's how I know it's a scripted. You go like, okay, that's scripted. So Matt, I just, so the, the the psychology that you were just talking about uh, around this thing called the cliffhanger and like what Joanna and something gained. Oh, Chip Chip, 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 yeah, they, they do that really well at the end. And actually all the HGTV shows do that. It's the last two minutes of the show. They'll cut to a commercial break. Then they'll come back and you got a minute and a half or so. Of sunshine and rainbows. E- then. Exactly. <laughs> and, and it's like the final reveal. Yeah, yeah. And it's like everybody knows. Well, the makeover show, that's called the reveal. Oh, the re- yes, yes, the reveal. So, and so, yeah, so everything builds to that moment because, you know, it, it's like Pavlovia. I mean, most home and garden or any of those kind of Rips network shows like DIY all follow the same formula, you know? So in other words, you all know that you get at the very end of the show, it pays off, you know? So it's like, if you got this joke for like going on for 15 minutes, you know, a punchline's coming. Uh-huh. You know? And if it doesn't, you hate the guy. Like you just wasted my time. You know? <laughs> yeah. But so that's their formula. I love and, and it's I hate for most of those shows. Yeah. I love and I hate the contrived notion, right? Well, it's so funny because the everybody knows who's watching, they know that they're being manipulated. Can I say that word, Matt? It's a manipulation, isn't it? Oh, yes. It is totally manipulated. Okay. Yeah. So everyone knows they're, that's watching knows they're being manipulated, and yet they sit through those commercials and wait for that reveal. For it's the- just. My the payoff, they yeah. know that it's oh, be my there. son, he acts like it's torture. He's like, <laughs> if I hear the word tiny one more time, I'm going to stab myself in the eyeball with a fork. <laughs> like, he hates that whole predictive, contrived, um, artificial drama. Yeah. Right? And I'm like, you just wait. When you are 21 and we're going to sit around, we're going to do a shot every single time they say tiny. <laughs> it will become eminently more entertaining. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm sure they'd be all down for that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So that psychology... But yeah, it's, it's, it's you know, I, the psychology of that, in, in because one of the things that people don't get about television is it is the most linear form of entertainment, right? I mean, you can't skip around. Oh, right. You know, it, and it, it makes sense. You know, when you're reading something, you, you do all different stuff, but a TV show is linear. Huh. And, and the purest manifestation of like, I, I've put, you know, I've spent like 20 minutes, so damn, I'm going to finish this show, <laughs> otherwise it's a waste of my time. <laughs> poker shows, right? Yeah. It doesn't matter who's playing, but you got to know who wins. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. Poker's awesome. <laughs> you know? Yeah, because... There used to be Watching this thing like, dry. oh, that guy's really good. We should do a show around him, and none of them work. Because <laughs> the star of a poker show is not the players. It's the actual game of poker. Yeah. Interesting. That's funny, Matt, because one of the things they've been talking about the last two or three months kind of in the podcast industry is the next big thing in podcasting is going to be reality podcast. <laughs> and I don't know what that exactly means. I but, guess we're going on the road then, huh? But uh, <laughs> Taking the show <laughs> on the road. <laughs> Well, We've I mean, already like, done this that American a couple times. That's probably close. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, an ear hustle, you know, mm-hmm. talking to the 
ex-con or the con. Yeah, I mean, to me, you know, the, the whole idea is I think long form, you know, unless you put big money into it and do like a really compelling, it, it's all about the story for, for long form. Yeah. But for most things, now, I think your limit's going to be around five minutes. Everything's going to have to be pretty short. But you're still going to have to deliver everything that a long form does in five minutes. So, you know, so I, I've been doing a lot of, studying about that and theorizing about story construction and how it works and stuff. And to me, it's fascinating. I mean, that's how I get out in the weeds. I mean, that's really sounds stupid, but I think about storytelling a lot and how it works. And, um, uh, you know, so I, I think one of the things when you're talking about a reality podcast or something, you have to front load everything. Um, you know, you have to kind of tell them what they're going to hear Oh, you have man. to entice them and give them something right away for yeah. them to invest it. And yeah. then you elaborate. I think gone are the days where you have mysterious opens and you kind of don't pay it off till later. Yeah. People won't stick around for that. Mm. So, I don't know. That's just <laughs> my craziness. Yeah, very interesting. This, this show has been... Um, it was, I, I was not expecting the show to go the way it has gone, but it's been very fascinating. And... Um, and so we really thank you, Matt, for being on the show today. Um, it's been a pleasure, actually. Mm-hmm. As usual. I say we hoarded oh, good great. ideas. Thank you. Yeah, it's been fun. <laughs> and, and Tiny House listeners, you've listened to yet another interesting show with no reveal at the end. <laughs> um, but you stuck out oh, anyway. I, don't know. I could show you something. <laughs> don't, don't show us. <laughs> oh, we're back to that harassment again. <laughs> uh, tune in next week. We'll have another Woo! interesting show, we promise. And uh, we will see you on the flip side. Bye. Namaste. See you guys. Thank you for listening to Tiny House Podcast. To find us online, go to tinyhousepodcast.com, where you will also find our show notes, if you remember to put them there. Our logo was designed by the amazing Carolyn Main. Our website is hosted by the gang at Sightcast. Our theme music is by Oma Studio. Please go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating, or whatever. You tiny house-loving bastard. Tiny House Podcast is probably made in Portland, Oregon. <laughs>